Welcome everyone to Next Stop Transit Tech. This is Andrew Carpenter. I'm the director of NCAT and I'm here with your usual host, Marcella Moreno, and then also Kevin Chambers, who is the technologist for the National Center for Mobility Management, one of our technical assistance centers. And we are here to talk about cool new transit technology and mobility management related news and where those two intersect with each other and the exciting things that are happening out in the world in these realms. Hello, it's Marcella. Like Andrew was saying, the National Center for Mobility Management releases their monthly tech updates where Kevin pulls together all of these emerging news stories across a lot of different transit and mobility management topics like electrification, TNCs, just general mobility news. So this is a bit different from the format that we've done in the past. We have one other episode like this where we go over news topics. So we're excited to bring this back again. We can go ahead and just dive in. Yeah, it's a it's a fun time for reflection a little bit and maybe stepping back from a particular agency or a particular focus and just kind of look at what's happening in the field generally and thinking broadly about it. So it's fun to be able to join you two and be here with you. Yes. Thanks for being here in this virtual hybrid space, which in itself is its own technology that people should keep their eye on because meetings won't just become more and more like this, I'm sure. Yeah, I think we're I think we're over the hump as a society where now Zoom meetings are the default and it's like, are we gonna meet do we have a reason to meet in person? <laughs> I do miss meeting in person just because uh you would get your steps in walking from one room to another, one building to another. Absolutely. When you're here for TRB, maybe we can do an in real life episode. Oh, I would love that. I'm looking forward to being in DC. Um, next month and uh, joining you all and hearing about what's happening across the world of transportation. For those of you who don't know, the main research body in the United States for transportation is called the Transportation Research Board, and it is a nonprofit funded uh, largely by the United States government. And uh, once a year, they hold this massive conference in DC in January. A lot of people go to it. And so it's a opportunity to find out what's happening and find out what's happening, particularly on the side of research, but also just meet people who are doing deep work in the field of mobility. I'm always impressed by the significant amount of presentations on the topic of asphalt. So just not my area of, of expertise or particular interest, but there's a lot of talk about asphalt. But then there's also stuff for mobility managers also and for people in transit. It's a it's a good time. And maybe that would be fun maybe at some point, maybe not during the conference or maybe on the tail end of it on Wednesday or something, we could do a little like, here's what we learned from, uh, from TRB, the 101st TRB conference. I've only ever been virtually... And I don't know if I'll make it this time, even though I'll be in D.C., but I'll be interested to see what comes out of it. Yeah, me too. And of course, this is the first one in person since the pandemic got rolling. And so it'll be very interesting to see how it, you know, what a uh, sort of in-person, but still with parameters to keep it safe. It'll be the first conference I'll, we'll have gone to So since all this got rolling. Exciting. 
Well, I will jump in on the tech update that I was most excited to read about. It's around the topic of new mobility for all. And basically, this news article was summarizing some research coming out of Portland State University, uh, where researchers worked with the City of Portland's Bureau of Transportation to evaluate a pilot program that they were doing, which was developing a transportation wallet uh, for residents of affordable housing. And so essentially what that program provided was a $308 prepaid visa that could be applied to public transit or other transportation services. It provided a free bike share membership to Bike Town, which is Portland's bike share company. And I'm curious, Kevin, do you use Bike Town? I do use Bike Town. So we're in version two of Bike Town. Version one was pedal bikes only, and now they're all e bikes. So they completely Ooh. replaced the fleet. And the first version, you were able to buy a annual pass. Um, or monthly pass. I wasn't quite sure how the pricing worked, but basically, all every ride was completely free once you you know paid that amount. And I loved that, and I use it quite frequently to get to and from bus stops. So I had a a bike town. There's a bike town corral, I guess would be the term, just like three blocks from my house, and then I could get to work faster by going to a further away bus stop from my closest bus stop. It was a perfect example of like ways that bike town can augment transit. This new one, you always have to pay something, even if you're a member. And so I haven't used it as much, but the e-bikes are very slick. In the <laughs> just being able to just get on and pedal and suddenly you're going 20 miles an hour without really breaking a sweat. So it's a great service and it started fairly close in to downtown and sort of central neighborhoods. And now it's moving out to more and more of the city. So it's a great service and I'm really glad that it's being included as part of this uh, this offering by uh, PBOT, the Bureau of Transportation. That's awesome. I also love that we get to have a Portlanders perspective uh, since you know the area. Yeah. Um, the last benefit was uh, discounts on other services related to transportation just to encourage uh, multimodal trips. So their findings, which were fascinating, were that a majority of low-income participants had already used TriMet, but half of the respondents to their evaluation survey had tried new modes that they otherwise would have not tried. And they correlated this information with new signups for bike share and e-scooters and ride hail. So that's really great. Respondents uh, reported less stress on how to meet their basic travel needs for medical appointments, grocery store runs, just the things that everyone has to do to exist. And while ride hail and TriMet were the highest utilized services, almost 30% of participants had signed up for e-scooter and bike share programs. And I think the implications of this study that I'm most interested in are that the low-income participants in this program were able to have a set budget to meet their transportation needs. And like, what does that mean for quality of life? What does that mean for all sorts of things that benefit folks like having access to jobs, being able to see family and eliminate social isolation? The other big question that I had, and I kind of want to pick both of your brains on this, was the 
idea that having this financial security for transportation led to choosing new modes that someone wouldn't necessarily try. So is it knowing that your financial need is met there so you're more willing to experiment? Or is it knowing if, you know, this new mode, if you try bike share and you don't love it, you have a backup, which could be ride share, it could be TriMet. What do you all think? I would say it's both to to not um, give a good answer. But the, because there's both, if you're, I think the first one is kind of a version of induced demand. And so if you have already paid for something or it's already paid for in some way, then you're more likely to use it just because there's no perceived cost of doing so. And as a result, it opens you up to if there's a short-term moment where your habit might be broken, just say your car is broken down or a bus line is suspended for whatever reason, then in the moment you're kind of forced to choose something. But at the very least, you're not focused on any sunk costs of transportation because you can just do whatever. And then on the other side of it, what was the second point? Um, Whether it was knowing that you had a backup option in your pocket. Um, And this is off the top of my head, so I can't remember where I saw the study, but a lot of commuters, at the very least, they, in various travel studies, have cited the fear of not being able to get home or anything on an, in an emergency. So in, in particular, the example a lot of people give is in case they have to pick up their kid from school if they're sick. And so that's where the Guaranteed Ride Home program came from, is that emergency need for commuters. That's usually for longer distance stuff, but I think it still applies here where you have going back to that induced demand idea and having already opened yourself up to all of the modes if one thing fails you then this does help you be able to make a quick decision to get where you need to go based on the environment you're in yeah i agree with all of that and i i think on top of it i mean what this does is it's a great way to provide an opportunity to pe- for people to make shifts in their life. I think once people work out, they got their mental model of this is how I get from place A to place B, and this is how it works, and I know this works. And if it involves a, a private automobile, they've got it all mapped out. And they've, over years, and because we're such a car-dependent society, you learn all the things you have to do in terms of getting the car, maintaining the car, fueling up the car, getting out to the car 15 minutes early so you can warm it up if it's 20 below. All those things are sort of dialed in for people. But then something that could be potentially easier and cost savings, it's maybe hard to embrace if you just don't know the model or there's social stigma or it's just fear of the unknown, there's a little bit of pomp and circumstance to it that like, hey, we're giving you this benefit and and we'd like you to uh, try this stuff out. And it's really simple. And there's probably a little bit, maybe a little bit of training and help along with it. And people are like, oh, wow, look at this. It creates this zone of experimentation where the risks seem lower and um, the willingness to try, try things increases. And I think that's where you can really get changes to habits. I'm really curious to see how 
experiments like this happen longitudinally? Like how long, like, okay, uh, what does this look like six months from now? What does this look like a year from now? What happens if the benefit is withdrawn? Is is the benefit to provide long-term support or is it to, to help a family develop changes in habits and then you can withdraw that support and they've made because they've made the transition and now they're using transit or maybe it's or maybe it's decreased right so maybe it becomes a different type of support or or what have you i think we need a lot of experimentation about how to support people to um, make transitions and how they get around particularly from single occupancy personally owned vehicles to shared modes Another thing that will be interesting to see is a key component of getting people to change their behavior is introducing something new to them while they are dealing with a change in circumstance. And so frequently if people move, uh, move house or change jobs or lose a job or anything like that. So I would also bet if they were to lose their car for whatever reason due to mechanical issues it's just an old car and it was time to get rid of it so they can at least reevaluate. And so that would be a good way to target those types of benefits and say, you could buy a new car or you could get money every month to travel and not use a car. So that or getting in, if you got a new job working through employers to help people get there and see how those benefits would help in those different ways and if that would change habits in that way. Interesting. I'd like to see what that looks like. Um, Like Kevin said, longitudinally. um, Another thing that I could see is if there are families participating and it's something that the entire family is doing, like we're all renting bikes to like go somewhere or we're getting on the bus to like do a thing that that's setting like a precedent for the younger kids in the family and making that initial dip into transit or public transportation a little bit less intimidating if it's something that you grew up with. Just because if you go from like not riding the bus to riding the bus, there's a lot of things that I'm sure are very anxiety inducing. Like, I don't have cash. What do I do? I'm short 25 cents. How do I buy a card if your service or your system has a a card-based system? There was a recent study in a small urban city in Illinois on how tech-enabled bike share helped complement public transportation. Um, And their research shows, um, actually to your point, Kevin, about the traditional bikes versus e-bikes, having traditional bike, bike share, increased bus ridership by 1%. And then having e-bikes increased it by an additional 1.1%. Yeah. Yeah, I really love this. And on our last podcast, we talked about the effort in Pittsburgh to uh, support. And I think that was with, you know, maybe 100 sort of test people or families. And this is another example of that. I think it would be a recurring, good recurring thing to come back to that, we don't really know how to support people to change their mobility habits. Like we don't know nearly as much as we could mm-hmm. about what is a successful intervention look like? Which interventions are the best ones? For example, of the ones you mentioned, Andrew, of like when you're moving, 
when there's a life change, when you sell your car, how do they compare? What And then at those life changes, what types of interventions are best? Is it best that it happens through the the transit agency or is it best if it comes from the apartment building manager or you know what i mean like what are the different ways we could do this what are the most uh, effective just from a cost perspective as well as a behavior change perspective and and we have a lot of work to do in terms of working to achieve the the climate goals that we want i mean one of the articles that was in the set of news stories that i put together is that is the cities are saying that in order to meet climate goals transit agencies need to double in size, right? And that's an extremely heavy lift um, given where transit agencies are right now. I mean, um, TriMet here in, in my hometown here has actually reduced service by 9% because of lack of drivers, um, not because of lack of funding, although that is certainly going to be an ongoing challenge also. So we're actually moving right, you know, on a temporary basis in the opposite direction from the way we need to go. And so finding these ways that we can get more people on buses, we just have to get really creative. And it's at the worst time, too, because of that change in circumstance where eventually people will go back to the office at some level. And so so having reduced service at the exact moment when people might be starting to do stuff again is not the best timing. And so there's a risk of other habits being ingrained while people come out of the pandemic and so then by the time life's back to the new normal, uh, then then those habits will have been established already. I think also that's a good chance to mention another of the articles this month is about more general universal basic mobility programs that are starting to pop up around the country. So to build on the idea from Portland, uh, Bakersfield, California is also testing out a concept called universal basic mobility. And the idea is that the city wants to just make sure people can get where they need to go. And how do they best go about doing that? The idea is to do this without being in a personal car, but through other means, using the transit system, bike share, scooters, anything like that. So I think based on the deeper discussion in Portland, but then more broadly, the U.S. is starting to experiment with those ways of how to intervene in a positive way to both get people to take transit, walk and bike, and to make sure that people's transportation needs are well met to ensure that they're able to participate fully in their community. Yeah, it's a really interesting concept, the idea of universal basic mobility, and it's taking a lot of forms. You can see every community that's doing it is uh, working to cobble together these different elements. I think that's a core concept behind the Portland effort. It also matches up with some of the conversations that are happening around the world around having fareless transit systems, which is coming at an interesting time in the sense that there's a lot of interest in electronic contactless fares. And then some communities are saying, why are we even doing this at all? These systems can be costly. Sometimes they're less costly than handling money, but there's certainly a lot of effort to get them going. And really what we want is to just get as many people in seats as possible. There's a lot of trade-offs to think about with that side of things, because of course that is a source of revenue for the transit agencies. And so it could end up causing problems in terms of reduction in service. But I love love, love that 
people are really thinking broadly about this in in ways. And, and a lot of the things that were just sort of givens about what transit should cost, how it fits into the larger mobility landscape, these things are being questioned in ways that I, I certainly didn't see five years ago. Do you think this is kind of the natural or inevitable evolution of mobility as a service? Yeah, I think I think it's sort of, well, you know, mobility as a service was a marketing term from the beginning. And so I think the term came, gosh, I think we're approaching 10 years that the term came out, out of Northern Europe. And then there was this big hope that mobility as a service would just sort of spread like wildfire across Europe and into the United States. And it really hasn't. We're just sort of seeing lots of pilots. And I do think you're right in the sense that it is a natural evolution, especially in the United States, where questions of equity have really come to the fore. I think when it was initially proposed, at least the way it sort of came across to the United States, it had this sort of giving more options around mobility to people who already had a lot of options. Mm -hmm. And it was the person who could drive a car. It's like trying to lure people who already have a lot of choices into transit with these new shiny objects. And there's still some of that, but I feel like these universal basic mobility and the idea of fareless systems and all that, I do feel like it's like it's more grounded in what the needs of the community are than I think the initial sort of gee whiz tech, you can do it all from your phone kind of gee wow uh, feel that it had at the beginning. Yeah, because I guess the gee wow feeling that you're describing was a very like technology forward approach. And it's like, how do we coordinate all of these services using technology, but it doesn't answer or address the fact that there are areas that don't have great service. And just because you have technology piecing it all together doesn't magically make that service incredible. So how do we address the needs of the people who live there so that they can get around and then the technology piece will follow? How do we piece it together now once that core service is meeting the needs of the people who use it? Uh, just this morning, we were speaking with Janae Futrell of CivicSphere, and she had a great way of describing this. And so first, a shameless plug for one of our upcoming resources, uh, Digital Tools to Facilitate the Complete Trip. And the idea behind that is you still need good service at the base of it to make technology help out around the edges, basically. And so as Janae described it, the technology is the icing on the cake, but you do still need a good cake for it to be edible. So make sure you get the fundamentals right first. That's a great, that's a great metaphor. I mean, if, and you know, this has been true for a long time. Like uh, if you know exactly where your bus is, I mean, this is true for the technology that's become fairly widely deployed in terms of real, real time bus locations. It's nice to know when your next bus is coming, but it's not going to be revolutionary for you if your bus comes only once every hour. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And almost the flip side is the ideal where you don't even need to know when the next bus is coming because it's coming so frequently that if you miss the bus, you know it's only 10 minutes later to the next one. And so you just get there whenever you need to and you know, you're not stressing about it and you're not relying on that technology. So there is a role for technology, but the core technology that we really want is just buses or trains or e-bikes, right? The actual wheels, the things with wheels, not necessarily the apps on your phones. Very true. I am going to ask 
a silly question, but if mobility was a cake, what kind of cake would it be? Ooh, it would be a rainbow cake because it would encompass everything. <laughs> <laughs> like the funfetti, yeah, like Pillsbury kind. <laughs> Those are so good. <laughs> oh man, With you, 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 ask, you ask big questions here, Marcella. These are, I mean, my first thought uh, since you're asking, you know, it's almost a, it's a opportunity to stand on a soapbox, right? Like, what do you want your cake to look like? I think one thing I want my cake to be is like, first of all, I, I want the things that I need to get you to not be very far away. A big, dense. I want a cake. dense cake. <laughs> Maybe flourless. I don't know. You know, Ooh. something very <laughs> no filler. <laughs> we could run with this metaphor <laughs> layer cake also because there are many layers of needs for Ooh. mobility if we want to get complicated with it <laughs> which I, it is i see so. a good uh tweet series when uh we release this in Court <laughs> i think i might stick with the with the flowerless i want my cakes the way i want my cities dense <laughs> <laughs> that was perfect <laughs> Tagline found. Um, I know we've talked a lot about pilots, and I'm just curious what they'll look like in different areas because Philadelphia is not Portland, which is not Bakersfield at all. And from my limited knowledge about Bakersfield, I understand it's a pretty sprawling place. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of warehouse packaging sorts of jobs a la Amazon and that kind of stuff. So the needs are very different. Mm -hmm. Since every city and town has its very specific economy and culture and the things that work in Portland may not speak to the things that work for the people in Bakersfield. So Yeah, it has so much to do with like, well, where are the origins and where are the destinations? Right? There's sort of a, a set of principles around helping think about where those places are and pulling off the shelf what are different methods to get people from those origins to those destinations. And it just varies across so many elements. Now we're getting to the world of mobility planning, right? With the cool thing that's happened, I think, and this is where mobility as a service still captivates me, is that the number of things you can pull off the shelf as options, 40-foot mm -hmm. buses, smaller buses, you can pull off the scooters and the bikes and the TNCs, as well as just things like sidewalks. And you can pull all those together into a single itinerary and put that in front of somebody in a predictably automated way. That's just really exciting, the idea that um, you could automate that process. We're still very far from that in terms of like being able to achieve everything we want. And there's a little fear for me that we can expect too much of that technology when really, you know, we again, the service levels aren't where they need to be or the number of scooters or the, the, the bike lanes or what have you aren't in place. But it could help organize us and sort of motivate us to get to that desired place. Speaking of TRB and asphalt, that's an important technology for sidewalks mm -hmm. and fulfilling the mobility network even more than just the vehicle. It's what it's running on. Because you can have a trip planner that tells you to walk along a road, but if there's not a sidewalk there, you may rethink that decision very quickly, depending on what the environment is like. Yeah, absolutely. Or there there may be sidewalks, um, but there may not be curb cuts. 
Mm-hmm. I recently talked with a uh, academic in Seattle, uh, University of Washington, at the Tasker Center. Um, and I'm not going to get the full name of the Tasker Center right, but Anat Caspi, and she's working on a tool for an FTA-funded project where they're mapping in great detail all the pedestrian options and where there are curb cuts and where there are publicly available elevators. Downtown Seattle, for example, is parts of it are very steep. And so if somebody who can't climb a steep sidewalk easily, they could get an itinerary from point one part of downtown to another that actually references the sidewalks. Ask, well, when are you going? Are you going at midnight or are you going at noon? If you're going at noon, you can take this route. You can actually walk in this building, go up to the third floor, and then walk back out at level on the other side of the building. That's super cool. (laughs) Isn't that cool? I know there are efforts to get those lobbies to open up the elevators at all times of day, too, for that exact purpose. Hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. When we were in Iowa literally yesterday, the skywalks, as much as I love people being like on street level, engaging with the streets and all that, it was very nice to have the option of an elevator if you need to get around and to be protected from the elements. That tool sounds super helpful. And to call back to another older episode from this season, NERPSI put together a map with their staff of all the ADA accessible bus stops, and they published it on Google Maps so that riders in that service area could know, I will not take this route because this bus stop isn't accessible. And that doesn't solve the problem of all bus stops being accessible, um, but it does allow you to plan your trip a bit better. Yeah, it helps on the rider front. And it also, I mean, to me, that's a great example of highlighting how good data has multiple purposes. So it's good for the rider so that they don't make a trip that they shouldn't and find out that they're left in the lurch in some way. But it also is a way of putting actionable information in front of planners and decision makers and budget committees of like, look, look where there's not accessibility here. Here's where it is. And you can overlay that with demographic information. You know, where are historically underserved populations in relation to these stops that aren't accessible? Let's take a look at that. And that could influence where we want to be investing money. That's a really great thing. That's one of the things that I'm very excited about, the expansion of the general transit feed specification, which is the default way to digitize transit services. It started off being about fixed route and just <coughs> where are the buses and when are they uh, stopping, but it's branched out into a lot of other areas under the support of mobility data to cover stop amenities, and be able to describe transit centers with great detail. Like, how do you get, for example, if it's going to be a, a train station or a larger facility, how do you get from one part of the station to another to make your transfer? Does involve stairs? You know, all that stuff can now be tracked. And it's still a lot of effort to put that data in. But once it's done and maintained, then decision making and planning can be just so much improved. Agreed. So I would move us over to a new topic, which is thinking about electrification. So as I do these articles over, uh, I've done these articles over the last couple of years, one of the things that's really exploded in the last few months is articles about electrification and the 
the scaling up of all the infrastructure that's needed to have electric vehicles. Lots of articles about the grid and all the ways that we need to improve the grid so that we can be charging vehicles effectively, especially large fleets of buses and getting them the infrastructure needed at the bus barns and yards so that they can be charged up and ready to go the next day, as well as everything that needs to go into the production of batteries and all the various ingredients. So the cobalt, the all the the rare metals that are spread across the planet and need to be collected and put together to support the production of batteries and then making those batteries at scale where the factory is going to be. It has really been amazing to watch this. And there's significant numbers of articles coming in now about the geopolitical layers to this of different nation states investing in other nation states in different ways so that they can get the raw materials that they need reliably. It's starting to feel like a new replay of the geopolitics that we've seen with oil, where there's there's oil-rich states, and now we have lithium-rich states, lithium being one of the main ingredients, or there's cobalt-rich states. It's really been interesting to see this happen. And one of the things, the takeaways for me about it is that I think the economies of the world are making the turn and really taking this seriously of like, we need to do this and we need to figure out how we're going to do it at a scale that is really unprecedented. So I think those kinds of articles, that kinds of news, and then just sort of every month, such and such a company is making this multi-billion dollar investment in a factory that's going to be placed here or here. And the level of R&D that's going into batteries. So there's a couple articles. One says, uh, kind of asks, will the power system be ready? So what needs to happen with the grid and what is the role of the, the infrastructure bill? We're talking billions of dollars. So there's uh, $30.7 billion in EV eligible funding in the infrastructure bill, I understand, as well as a lot of money going into support the underlying national grid. That's very exciting. Um, But then there's all these warnings in terms of the amount of work ahead. It's still daunting. Monumental. It's monumental. It really is. It's a significant reworking of the national and global energy system. And we're kind of, I I feel like we're in the, we're still at the, the beginning of the curve, but the roadmap has been built and leaders across the world are looking at it and talking about it in ways that go beyond lip service. So it's exciting. But it also means I think we're getting into that area of trade-offs. Like what are, what are the environmental impacts of mining lithium? What are the environmental impacts of mining these sort of rare earth minerals in the countries that have them? How do we think about those? How do we evaluate those trade-offs? It's going to be an interesting time to look at all of that. Mm-hmm. Now it's the initial technology has become largely viable, and so now what to do with all of that, and then the after effects of it, like getting rid of the batteries, mm-hmm. which still have a lot of capacity. And so, I was reading, I think it was in the Guardian, about how while old batteries are not useful for vehicles anymore, they're still great for storing power for homes. 
And so they could be used to create microgrid power banks or other applications like that. And so they still have plenty of capacity to to hold on to excess renewable energy in some way. So people are now experimenting with the end of the one life cycle and turning it into something else. I love that way of thinking. And I know that recently we were just talking about buildings Mm -hmm. and what happens when, you know, the big box stores of the world build a giant building parking lot and then they find that location doesn't serve them anymore and you just have a a big footprint of asphalt and a building that otherwise doesn't really have a good purpose. So I'm glad that now that this technology is viable, people are like, okay, but what happens after? Because it seems like a lot of that thinking was kind of absent from our predecessors uh, in the world. I think another article that I was reading about electrification uh, from the Washington Post was asking the question about equity in the electrification movement and where, and this was for personal vehicles, but where are these charging stations being cited? And they were finding that they were not being cited in low-income and BIPOC communities. So hopefully having people setting the alarms early on these sorts of things will help drive the industry in a more equitable and sustainable direction early instead of it being an afterthought and being like, oh, well, maybe we'll just bury it all in a mountain. Right. Yeah, there's so many components to this because what really is is it's an entire new layer of infrastructure that needs to be built out. Like, And there's so many facets to it. I mean, it's just sort of a hydra-headed beast that we're all trying to like you know solve all these different elements to it for people who own their own detached housing and they have a driveway all they need to do is just some minor electrical work to get what they need right but then when you get to denser areas where there's parking is on the street then well how how are those folks going to get there and i'm seeing that in my neighborhoods here so i'm in a neighborhood that's mixed with detached housing and apartments my house is a house without a driveway. So I've started looking around the neighborhood and seeing other people who've sort of run extension cords up into trees, you know, over the level of the um, of the sidewalk, and then they drop them down and they've set up some sort of improvised box so that they have a place to, to plug into some sort of low voltage thing. You know, I haven't seen any high voltage, whatever, 220 level chargers being put out on the street by homeowners or uh, or landlords, but I, I think that will be coming soon to a neighborhood near me. And that makes me think, going back to your comment about trade-offs, is which power plant will people invest in next? Will it be that they're going to have to start choosing how to start building the power generation in general? And so will battery electric vehicles all be fired by coal? Because... That's the only way to get all the energy we need, or that's what we invest in, or will it be by solar and figuring out? So the grid thing, or the grid part will be just as important as the vehicles themselves. And then also, how will the sidewalk infrastructure be developed so that people aren't running extension cords across uh, in the rain? Yeah, the electrification doesn't mean zero emission, right? It means you may be just moving the emissions over somewhere else. It may be fewer emissions by comparison. 
you may be involving trade-offs. You know, for example, nuclear, of course, has uh, a complex set of trade-offs versus renewables or uh, certainly coal. Right? These are broad topics. Yes, it like <laughs> goes so much. It gets so much bigger than transportation, and then you're like, whoa, okay. All I know is that I don't want to end up in the world of Wally. I'd like to avoid that if at all possible. I still want to be self-propelled and doing stuff outside. Exactly. Well, I will do the closing. And then if we talk later, then we can continue our fun conversation. (laughs) Thank you, Kevin, for being here for this last episode for 2021 of Next Stop Transit Tech. I'm really happy that we have closed out this year with a lot of really strong episodes, including these news updates. Thank you, Andrew, for also being here, as always. Thanks for having me. Of course. Anytime. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everyone. All right. Looking forward to hearing you and seeing you in 2022.